Hello and welcome to Brain Stories. I'm Steve Fleming and I'm here with my co-host Caswell Barry. On Brain Stories, we aim to provide a behind-the-scenes profile of the latest and greatest work in neuroscience, highlighting the stories and the scientists who are making this field tick. We don't just ask about the science, we ask how the scientists got to where they are today and where they think their field is going in the future. Today, we're joined by Professor Nicola Rehani. Uh, she's a professor of evolution and behavior at UCL. She's a Royal Society and University Research Fellow and a Fellow of the Royal Society of Biology. Uh, we're very lucky to have you here. And so I'm going to start with a few easy questions to ease you in. So could you start by telling us a bit about who you are and what your research is about? Sure. So I am Nicola Rehani, and I'm a professor of evolution and behavior. Uh, and also a Royal Society Research Fellow in the Department of Experimental Psychology at UCL. And the big question that sort of um, keeps me going and has kept me going for the last too long now is um, why do individuals pay costs to help other individuals to whom they might not be related? And so essentially I'm interested in the evolution of helping behaviour, the evolution of prosociality and the psychological mechanisms that underpin social behavior in humans and some non-human species. And is that is this a sort of a lifelong interest or is there something specific that sort of triggered this for you? Could you point to the moment that you thought cooperation was important? Um, it, so it's always been the focus of my research, although I think my the different projects I've done, I have bounced around a little bit. So I've worked on family living species um, that I worked on a species of bird that lives in the Kalahari desert that lives in tight-knit family groups. I've worked on a fish that helps other fish to whom it's not even related um, by removing ectoparasites. So a lot of what I've done has been quite sort of diverse in terms of the model organism and the type of social behavior that you see. But I think that that kind of like thread that's running through all the research that I've done has always, that's always just been the thing that I've been super interested in is why, why should individuals ever pay costs to help one another? Because in some respects, it seems to be a little bit at odds with our understanding of evolution by natural selection. When you say pay a cost, what, what do you mean? You, I mean, you, for a second, I imagine your fish there with its wallet out sort of paying to eat the, the parasites, but I'm guessing that's yeah. not not what you mean at all. Yeah, so we tend to think about ecological costs most of the time. So, for example, um, for the fish, actually, the cost is a little bit strange. So with the cleaner fish that I worked on, they will remove these ectoparasites from the surface of the client's skin. But what they would actually rather eat is the client's living tissues so the thing that the cleaner fish finds delicious is mucus, uh, that's a living tissue, and scales. And so in some sense, you can say the cleaner fish is feeding against its preference if it chooses to remove parasites rather than the thing that it would actually like to eat, which is the delicious mucus and um, scales of the fish that it's cleaning. Uh, with the babblers, the cost, you know, there's costs. Babblers live in these family groups where two individuals breed and everybody else is relegated to the status of being a non-reproductive helper. And in that society, the non-reproductive helpers pay very real energetic costs and food costs by 
foraging around in the desert for you know scraps of food and then donating these items to the offspring of the breeding pair and so there really is sort of real measurable costs there that you can quantify and and i guess so an example that people are sort of familiar with is would this be a sort of similar scenario to say bees in a hive where you have like a a single breeding queen or is that a, a bad sort of public example that i might have heard of <laughs> no that's exactly that's exactly it basically i mean i guess with social insects a lot of social insects um which we actually refer to as being eusocial which kind of means truly social that kind of cooperation is taken to really and the extreme and it's a much more extreme form of cooperation than we see in a lot of vertebrate societies like babblers and meerkats but the underlying principle of there being large family groups with a small number of breeding individuals and a larger number of non-reproductive workers is kind of exactly the same and on, um, I mean, we should also say that, Nicola, you have a new book out, The Social Instincts, and we'll get on to that a bit later. And um, congratulations on that. It's um, a, a fascinating read. I was reading um, some of it over the weekend. And one example that came to mind there, I was wondering if you could unpack this a bit for us, is this amazing um, notion of ant suicide. Um, and that seems like almost like the ultimate cost that, that these insects are, uh, are paying. Yeah, it's actually a really lovely story in some ways, quite poignant. So there's a species of ant, um, Brazilian ant, called Ferelius pusillus, and they live in a nest underground, but they they forage above ground during the day. And so when it's time to go back to bed at night time, the colony all makes its way back to the nest, and a few of them, a few of the workers will stay at the surface, and they'll wait for everybody else to go into the nest. And once everyone's in, they will then start to gather sand and other debris to conceal the nest entrance completely from the outside. So they seal off the nest entrance. And in doing so, they sort of seal their own fate because they can't survive in isolation above ground overnight. But it's kind of there's even one more step to this kind of altruism, which is particularly poignant, I think, which is once they've done this job of closing off the nest and everyone inside is safe, they don't just want to die right by the nest because that is also potentially going to attract predators or unwanted things to where the nest entrance is. So they sort of turn off and march away into the into the desert and I read one paper that um I really thought the turn of phrase was so apt it's like they go outside and evidently they may be sometime and this happens every single night new new ants they do it every single night yeah so it would usually be like the older individuals in the colony that wow. would sacrifice themselves for the sisters and on the face of it you know that seems like a really puzzling thing and something which from a really narrow reading of Darwinian theory of evolution by natural selection a bit of a head scratcher in a way but obviously you can reconcile those kinds of extreme altruistic acts with the darwinian view by appreciating that these individuals live in giant family groups and that um by doing these kinds of acts of altruism those the altruistic individuals help copies of the genes that are in their bodies because those genes are also found in the bodies of all the individuals that they help to protect. And so is this, are we right to sort of look at this uh, through the lens of sort of uh, the sort of Dawkins ideas of the selfish gene, or have we moved beyond those? Is that still a sort of 
a valid interpretation of this sort of altruism. Yeah, I mean, nowadays people, I mean, people do still use the selfish gene on the genes I view framework, and it, I think it is still valid. I think in the field, we tend to talk about inclusive fitness. So we tend to think about the direct and indirect fitness consequences of behavior and direct fit, fitness consequences are those which impact your own personal um, reproductive success. And then indirect consequences are when your actions can impact the reproductive success of your relatives. And one of the main insights of, of evolutionary biology in the sort of last, I don't know, like 50 or 60 years was provided by Hamilton in, in sort of providing this inclusive fitness framework for understanding the evolution of social behaviour and how we can reconcile that with the Darwinian view. Because, of course, Darwin had no concept of a gene. You know, the, the idea of the gene wasn't known really at the time that Darwin wrote his book, which in some ways makes it all the more impressive just how able he was to sort of foresee all these developments that came much later in the field. That kind of makes sense to me how why altruism works within some family group, or at least with a group of animals that share genes to a greater or lesser extent. But how about your fish? They're, uh, you know, they're picking parasites off an entirely different species. And like you said, they're, they're not eating the, the tasty mucus, they're eating the nasty parasites. Um, what, what's driving that? Presumably it must be different. Yeah, so the, the reason why the cleaner fish are really interesting is that um, even though you might not think that cleaner fish and humans have got much in common, I mean, we have lived such wildly different lives. You know, they're underwater, we're not. They're a kind of small little fish and all that kind of thing. But in some respects, they do, the structure of their social worlds has some similarities with the structure of the social worlds that humans inhabit in the sense that they have thousands of interactions per day with complete strangers fish they don't know they haven't met they might never meet again and somehow in this underwater uh, cleaning system cooperation is maintained even without the ability to be able to talk about it to enforce rules and norms and you know to sign contracts like I promise here I promise not to exploit you by eating mucus and things like that so one of the really interesting questions in a way is how do these fish resolve this underwater social dilemma and are there any similarities in the way that we resolve social dilemmas in our interactions with strangers and it turns out that there are a few um, similarities so two of the key things that help to sustain cooperation in the cleaner fish system where we know that there are analogues in our own societies are um, punishment and um, a form of reputation based partner choice this sounds like it has direct analogues with basically internet culture where people sort of garner you know likes or kudos or or is is that correct are we just are we basically living out the fish world writ large in a way that i mean so i think the the cognition supporting reputation-based cooperation in cleaner fish is obviously going to be quite different to the cognition that humans use to uh, assess and also strategically manage our own reputation but the way it works in cleaner fish is that um they have, broadly speaking, two different kinds of client, and you can think of them as being fussy clients and not fussy. So basically, the not fussy ones don't have a very big home range. 
and they don't have very many cleaning stations within where they live. And what that means is that they don't really have, they haven't got many options. It's like they only have one cleaning station. They have to go there. There's no choice for them, really. The fussier clients are usually a bit bigger and they have a bigger home range. And as a result, they it's a bit for them like as if they live in a city with lots of different restaurants and they kind of do have choice in a way. So if they, what happens when a fussy cleaner fish arrives at a cleaning station is that they will often watch how the current interaction with the current fish ends and if it ends badly um, which you can see it's very easy to observe because a, a, a fish that's bitten by a cleaner fish will visibly jolt and then often either uh, swim away or chase the cleaner fish um, so if it ends badly then sometimes these visitor these fussy species they just don't stick around. They see if they think it looks bad. Where, where if they think, okay, that looks like a bad place where I might not get a good service, they just go to somewhere else. Um, and what we also know, based on a series of really clever experiments um, that were not done by me actually, um, is that the cleaner fish are really aware also of whether they're being watched by these fussy clients, and they they kind of put on their best behaviour when they're watched by the fussier clients, <laughs> and they they behave nicer to their current client to try to make sure that the fussy client doesn't swim away. It's, it's so fascinating. I, I'm wondering like what, um, you know, if you, if you go back, if you can imagine that you're kind of casting yourself back in time to when you were an undergraduate or, uh, you know, kind of just starting out your scientific career and then thinking like, this is what you'll be working on now. I'm just wondering, you know, wh- where were the first seeds of that, that interest in this, in this, area of of research and you know what what was your journey from say phd to to becoming um the scientist you are now it's my i think my answer to this is a bit embarrassing because i don't think i was particularly strategic um the truthful answer is that I'd done my PhD on the babblers in the kalahari and i was attending a conference um called the International Society for Behavioral Ecology, which is basically all the field biologists doing weird and wonderful animal behavior. And at the conference, I attended a talk by a guy called Redwan Bashari, and he is my collaborator who has worked on the cleaner fish for a really long time. And the way we do the cleaner fish research, it's it is kind of like out of a high-end holiday magazine. <laughs> I mean, there there actually is a high-end holiday resort there, so it's not you know that that is kind of the place. It's a tiny little island. It's on it's just off the east coast of Australia. If you Google it, it's called Lizard Island. It, you just kind of if you're going to Google perfect tropical island, if you have that image in your mind, that's what it looks like. It's a tiny island in the middle of. Uh, the Indian Ocean, surrounded by coral reefs, white sand, you know, like you name it, it's got it. So anyway, Redwan gave this talk and um, obviously one of his slides was, this is where we do the field work. And later on, I, I kind of knew him already. So I bumped into him and kind of more as a joke than anything. I just said, oh, I wouldn't mind doing field work at your place. And he was like, well, do you really want to? Because um, I think that it would be really interesting for us to work on this punishment question and blah, blah, blah. Mm. And that was kind of, it was just one of those throwaway things that then turned into a really, really fruitful collaboration. And actually, as it turned out, the fieldwork there was nowhere near as glamorous as I had envisaged. <laughs> so it wasn't quite what I had imagined, but... It is It is really important, isn't it, to hear, I think, from people who are maybe starting out science that 
a lot of these decisions are not strategic. And I think that's the case for more. It's probably more common that they're less strategic than 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 less common. Um, but so so when you, when you say that um, the reality was not quite as tropical and exotic <laughs> as it turned out, what what exactly can you give us a sense of like what that work is like day to day? Yeah. So well, for the cleaner fish. Um, so some of the researchers there do underwater observations, and so they're out on the boat and they're doing a lot of diving and. That also sounds quite glamorous, but in the end, you get you kind of get really tired of doing that even. Um, that wasn't what I was doing. So for the work we were doing, a lot of it was quite, ex- we were doing really tightly controlled experiments. And so we would bring the cleaner fish off the reef and have them in housed in aquaria where the, we had, there's a dedicated field station for doing these kinds of things on Lizard Island. And essentially my day would be, um wake up get the frozen prawns out of the freezer spend about 20 minutes mashing them into a prawn paste which was, oh. it really puts you off prawns i can tell you so do that for a bit make this other paste that we so we're basically creating these two food types one is the mashed prawn which cleaner fish think is delicious and then another food type is fish flakes um mashed up which they don't think is delicious and we're trying to recreate the scenario they face on the reef which is do you eat the food that you like or do you eat the food do you feed against your preference and eat the food that you're not so keen on so we we prepare these foods um and then just be doing experiments basically all day in the in tiny little aquaria um it's incredibly repetitive and i i I always say that I think that one of the things about, I don't know if this is true of science in general, but definitely anything involving field biology or experimentation of that sort, you need like really opposite character traits. Like you need to be really excited, you know, interested and excited by the question that you're doing, but you kind of need a really, really high boredom threshold as well, because a lot of it is just super tedious, just collecting the data. So yeah, that was the kind of day-to-day at Lizard Island. Are you still, I'm curious, so you're based in the UK now, does this mean you still get sort of intermittent uh, trips to Australia to do what I'm going to classify as not entirely boring field work? Um, <laughs> or or, or can, can the cooperative science come to you? How, how does this work? Uh, I, the last time I went to Lizard Island was in 2016, I think, and I haven't been back since um although it's not completely off the cards but most of the work I do nowadays because I now work quite a bit on humans is sort of very desk-based and behind a screen and probably a lot more boring in some respects than going to Lizard Island but um once I started reproducing myself and having my own children just doing like really long stints in the field is kind of less and less compatible with with that in a way and so how easy is it to sort of extend the sort of strategies theories ways of working these sort of developed working with babblers fish etc to to the human world is it is it is it just a, a straight extension or are there sort of different questions that have sort of thrown themselves up um i think largely there are loads of um similarities and so have it I guess my work on humans, I come at it from a really broad evolutionary perspective. And that re- that kind of reflects my background of having been an evolutionary biologist working on non-human species. Um, 
I think the one one of the main differences with humans in a way is that they there's just a way higher chance for a human to mess up your experiment because they are just so much cleverer and they do understand you know there's a lot more chance for them to guess what the experiment is about or to basically just to use the cognition we have in a way to which in a way that messes up results I think and that's been one of the key that is really like a key difference between working on humans versus working on non-human species just like the the cognition you're trying to tap into is obviously so much more complex actually related to that there was a question I was going to ask you earlier and it's more relevant now when you were describing the uh the the fish feeding it sounded like they might be sort of a given fish might have one of two strategies. You could be like a very fastidious fish doing like a really good job and get like the high quality clients. Or you could just be like the naughty fish and sort of game the system and like take a nibble every now and then. And sort of these seem like kind of stable strategies. I don't know if that's true, but it seems even more likely that that might exist in sort of uh, more complex human cultures where you can sort of play multiple sort of roles. Is that true? Do you, I mean, so for, I guess the first bit, do you get sort of good and naughty fish using different different strategies? Um. I don't know if we've got enough data on individual cleaner fish to know about the repeatability of co- of cooperative behavior in that system. But I know that one thing, I think a lot of it is quite state dependent. So one thing we do know with the cleaner fish is that get, when they're hungrier versus when they're more, when they're better fed affects um, the level of service they provide to a client. Um, and another thing that um, is sort of related in some respects to what you said is that they the cleaner fish do have a way of kind of policing the behavior of one another in when they're interacting with clients so the cleaner fish is a bit of a weird fi- a weird fish or well, lots of fish are like this but it can be a bit strange if you're not used to fish which is that every individual starts out when it's born is born as a female and at some point in their life they can change sex and become male um, and for cleaner fish, it depends on the kind of group that they live in. So usually you'll have a um, a group of cleaner fish living on a territory and the biggest fish is the male and everybody else is a female that is subordinate to that male. And he aggressively enforces that kind of dominance hierarchy. Um, what happens with sometimes a male and a female on the same territory will inspect a client together. Um, and when they do that, if the female cheats, if she bites the client and makes the client swim away, then the male will aggressively reprimand her and punish her. And we've explored that behavior in the lab in much more controlled settings and shown that actually that punishment from the male fish causes the female to change her behavior. She is more cooperative in the next interaction after she's been punished the poor females can never punish the males because they're subordinate. So they just kind of, it's a very asymmetric um, power structure. So, so talking about like going from bridging between the animal work and the human work and having this broader evolutionary perspective um, on behavior. And this is something I think you do amazingly well in the book, which goes from genes all the way to, to politics and COVID and, you know, challenges for, for humanity. I'm just wondering how um, you see this because the book is all about cooperation and how that's a you know a, a, a foundational force. I'm just wondering how you see this tension with competition and especially in light of things like COVID and 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 climate change, like when we need to cooperate more than ever before. How do you what what are the lessons can we draw from 
the the this research that can tell us about the balance between cooperation and competition like one key insight in some respects not from my research but just from the whole from like the whole field of of social evolution is that cooperation and competition are two sides of the same coin and that cooperation is a means by which entities whether they're genes or cells or individuals improve their position in the world and so one of the one of the things that I think is not necessarily that intuitive is that sometimes cooperation at one scale can actually be harmful or can undermine the production of a public good or or cooperation at a larger scale Um, and so a really classic example of that inside our bodies would be something like cancer where you have um, many different cell lineages that can sometimes start working together to proliferate inside the host organism, um, but with an obvious detriment at the higher level of the individual or the, the organismal level. And we see that also in human societies where you can, there's a kind of now more or less accepted sort of result in the field, which is that sometimes family-based cooperation or nepotism or sort of cooperation within a small social circle can actually undermine the ability to then scale up cooperation to, you know, societal or, or, or broader levels, essentially. And so I think there is this sense in which cooperation is all, is something we sometimes think like, oh, we have to aim for cooperation and it's mm-hmm. this good thing and it, it's imbued with like positive language, but it needn't be. I mean, some some forms of cooperation are probably you know, depending on the scale at which we want cooperation to occur, some forms of cooperation are bad in a way, and they are mm. they prevent that transition to a higher scale of cooperation. And do you, and do you think that's that kind of cuts along, or it gives us another angle on what political dimensions mean? Like going from liberal to conservative, it feels like liberals are more willing to entertain the idea we should all cooperate at like a higher level, whereas conservatives are all about the family. Does that, yeah, does that totally. make sense? Yeah. 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 I mean, that's, so that's not, I've done a bit of work in that space. I, I did a work, I did a paper with Lee um, DeWitt, who's at University of Cambridge. Um, but this was based on established findings that political conservatives have a, what we call a smaller scope of moral regard. Essentially means they have a different, and this is obviously we're talking in averages here. You're not kind of, you're not kind of, you know, you wouldn't be able to guess someone's scope of moral regard just because you knew that they were conservative. But if you think about averages, um, political conservatives will tend to think that um, cooperation should be centred around a smaller, closer circle of individuals than than political liberals will. And when we did actually a paper on COVID and looking at the scope of concern about COVID, you know, whether if we Mm. ask people, how concerned are you? This was right in the, you know, at the start of the pandemic, but how how concerned are you for yourself? How concerned are you for your friends and family? And how concerned are you for everyone in society? What we found is that the answers to those questions of how concerned people felt were really, we could kind of predict those by by asking people about their political ideology. And essentially everyone expressed concern about themselves and their friends and family. But that where we really started to see things pulling apart was um, in the scope of concern for everyone in society. And that was really where 
political liberals were less concerned, um, sorry, were more concerned and political conservatives were less concerned. And that scope of concern then also predicts self-reported um, support for various policy measures and, you know, willingness to adopt preventive measures that help to stem the spread of COVID and things like that. So I think that there are some, we can sort of, there are some sort of big picture things we can start to unpick through this kind of worldview. It seems to me that sort of now more than ever, we're sort of faced with world problems that require cooperation on larger and larger scales. I mean, things like climate change, for instance, is going to take a, a global effort. Do we know whether, based off what you were just saying, do we know whether there's any sort of trends in, are people more cooperative now or less cooperative, or is it just impossible to say? I mean, I guess what I'm saying is, should we be optimistic for the future or not? It's hard to be optimistic, isn't it? Um, I think, so with the rise of Western democracy and the institutions that underpin the Western model of democracy, what has happened is that cooperation has become less centred on family groups and on intimate close relationships and has scaled up in some ways whereby, you know, the Western model is to endorse more or less impartial norms of fairness and to cooperate in a wider circle and with a larger number of people, including people that you might never have met. And so in some senses, you could say that the scale at which we cooperate um, in some societies has changed and has increased. I don't know if I would argue that like we have become more cooperative though. Like, I think that um, it's more a question of like the scale at which individuals feel they ought to cooperate, whether they ought to keep this, keep it within this tight family unit or whether it ought to be spread more around to um to other people in in society. Um, And I guess I am, I don't know whether I'd say I'm optimistic. I think I'd like to think that something like climate change is a problem that we can resolve, but having watched how the response to the COVID pandemic has played out, I just feel, I mean, like in so many ways, the pandemic should be a way easier social dilemma to solve than something like climate change because it's happening now. It's happening more or less to in all countries in the world. Everyone's affected. It's a disease that people kind of don't want to catch by and large. It has there's a real economic benefit of you know stopping it. Uh, you know, so like there's so many things which are just like it's in the here and now. There's an economic incentive to deal with it, and and yet still we've kind of struggled in a way to to appreciate um, our interdependence and to actually collaborate in a way on this larger scale and, you know, nations cooperating with nations. And I think, so I guess not to be depressing, but like, I don't know really how optimistic I am, to be honest. Is there, um, I mean, not to want to ladle on the pessimism, but is there, I was just thinking then that potentially the perspective from evolutionary um, behaviour is that, under threat is this idea that in some sense it is rational to shrink your circle of moral concern because if the threat level goes up eventually you want to protect the genes that you share with your family group is is that does that make sense does yes sort of although potentially not for that reason so um one of the one of another like really interesting result from social evolution is that when threat is increased or as the technical term that people use is when material security goes down Mm. um people tend to 
shrink their social circles. And in part, that might be because when it's not when it's not guaranteed that your immediate needs are going to be met, you kind of you might need to rely on a small number of highly interdependent interaction partners to ensure that you can you can kind of make it through the hard period. And you might need to ask more of those individuals than you would ask of just some random stranger on the street, right? And so, and those kinds of highly interdependent relationships are something that you see in lots of other human societies. Most famous example that I think is really nice is among the Maasai pastoralists who live in Kenya. And they have, they basically categorize people into more or less two kinds of relationship types. One is the essile, which is very much like we would interact with strangers. It's quite transactional. There's no special obligation to help, but they have a smaller number of what they call osatua partners. And osatua translates more or less into being umbilical cord. Um, so, and those individuals that they have these really interdependent relationships with, the expectation there is that if I need help, I can ask you for it and you, you'll you give it to me and there's, I don't have to pay you back. But if you need help ever, then I will also help you. Mm-hmm. And like, that's mm-hmm. kind of, that's how as a species in some sense we have prevailed, you know, over our, our long period of evolution is by having these interdependent relationships where we could rely on one another to get by. And I think that what we saw in the wake of COVID in some senses was a, was a reversion to those kinds of small scale networks where you saw like mutual aid groups springing up in neighborhoods that, you know, people would still go and panic buy stuff at the supermarket, but like um, you might go and panic buy it at the supermarket and then give it to your next door neighbor. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, in a way it seems a bit, you know, it's a bit sort of paradoxical, but if you think about the what's the point of those interdependent relationships, it kind of makes sense. I can just imagine Steve down the supermarket with a trolley full of toilet roll now. Um, <laughs> is that, I'm, and I'm then coming it, over to give it to you, Caswell. <laughs> yeah. So, where, so, so sort of looking forwards into the future, sort of we've gone from sort of fish up to sort of human culture. Um, what's what's the future? What are the big questions that you're sort of thinking about in the next sort of five, ten years? Where's where's your sort of field looking to move to, or are there sort of problems that need to be addressed? Kind of in the same area as the things we've just been discussing, really. So um, what I'm I'm interested in is understanding variation in the scales at which people cooperate and what predicts that and how. Um, so I think like quite for quite a long time, the the sort of received wisdom in the field has been that variation in the scale of cooperation has varies between countries. And so you might have heard of terms like individualism and collectivism, where people think that collectivism or people that live in collectivist societies tend to have very small, tight social networks and they cooperate at that tight scale, whereas people living in more individualist societies have larger looser networks with many weak connections and I think that that approach you know has a lot of promise but I also think there is scope for understanding how those patterns in the shape of our social networks and the scale at which we cooperate might vary not just between countries but within them and whether that whether we can start to understand some of the um 
differences in values and um, opinions that people have within a society and things like polarization and, and, and political polarization in particular, can we understand those through understanding this kind of scale at which people cooperate? And, and so I've, I'm quite interested now in exploring these tensions between what we call local and global cooperation and how where they come from in the first place and also potentially what would you need to do to try to resolve them so nicola we end every uh, episode of brain stories by asking everyone what is their uh, favorite or most unusual fact about the brain uh, so I'm actually going to just plagiarise one from my book, which I found out while I was writing my book, which is that although human infants are born with a massive head and a massive brain, and having given birth to two of them, I definitely um, know that that is the case, most of the human baby's brain growth is actually deferred to the postnatal period. And for a human baby to have the same cognitive and motor skills as a chimpanzee, um, a human baby would probably have to be born nine months later. So they would come out when they're about 18 months old. So we're born pretty undercooked. That was absolutely fascinating, Nicola. So thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Brain Stories and see everybody next time. Mm-hmm.